0: Welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Richard Link from Baylor College of Medicine talking about adult polycystic kidney disease.
1: My name is Yi. I'm one of the residents at UCSF. And uh, for our second lecture, I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Richard Link from Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, talking to us about uh, adult polycystic kidney disease.
0: Well, hello everybody. Hope everyone's having a good day. Uh, So I'm gonna touch a little bit today on polycystic kidney disease, which has become a a surprisingly large part of my practice over the last 15 years or so. Um, I uh, have no uh, disclosures for this uh, presentation that are relevant. I do want to do a public service announcement, though, since this is part of the COVID urology lectures. uh, We're not going to talk about COVID-19 today at all. I know everyone's used to doing that in all personal and professional conversations these days, but we're not going to touch on it. Um, For those of you that enjoy looking at that 3D rendered model of the COVID uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, this is the last picture you're going to see of it. I'm not going to give you any hand washing advice during this procedure and I I won't be giving you any sewing patterns for mass construction, although um, I'm sure that'll be a bit of a disappointment. And we're all pretty sick of this curve flattening stuff, so I'm not going to touch on that at all. So thanks uh, for your attention. If this is what you were really looking for, you know, good time to go get a coffee. All right, so what we are going to talk about today is uh, some background on autosomal Dominant Polycystic Kidney Disease sort of focused on the urologist. Uh, we're gonna look a little bit at the clinical diversity of presentation and talk about primarily some of the surgical indications in this disease, uh, particularly related to cystic and nephrectomy, and we'll focus on some of the minimally invasive approaches. Now, when you're building your practice and you're treating patients with polycystic kidney disease, it's really a partnership between urologist, and the transplant surgeon, and nephrologist. Um, They're really where the patients are coming from, Um, so it's important to facilitate that relationship. Obviously, today, we wouldn't do it this way. Uh, By shaking hands, we would use a much more appropriate uh, method for discussing these cases with our transplant uh, surgeons and nephrologists. So a little bit of background on polycystic kidney disease. Um, The prevalence of this is generally believed to be about 1 in 500 live births, uh, it's about 50 times more common than the autosomal recessive variant. This data is a little bit controversial because it's based on uh, data from the 1950s. And it may be that uh, ADPKD is a little less common, maybe one to 2,000 is more realistic. It's a little bit more of a progressive disease in men. And interestingly, it for five to 10% of all the end stage renal disease cases uh, throughout the world. So it's a pretty large component of uh, those patients. It's an autosomal dominant disorder with two causative genes, PKD1 and PKD2. And PKD1 accounts for about 85% of the cases uh, that we know about. Those with PKD2 mutations generally have a milder form of the disease. One of the real hallmarks of polycystic kidney disease is it's great phenotypic variability. And we'll touch a little bit on that uh, further on. And also about 10 to 15% of patients have no positive family history and probably represent new mutations. So just to go back a little bit, in 2018, uh, the crystal structure for uh, PKD1 and PKD2, or the PC1 and PC2 proteins, was uh, identified and published in Science. And the take-home message from this is that it's a complex that does its job. And so by affecting either of these subunits of the complex, uh, you can have an effect on the phenotype. Uh, The ratio is one PKD1 to three PKD2 uh, molecules. Now, the phenotype of polycystic kidney disease appears to be tied a bit to the uh, dosage of the PC1 protein. Now, this is the more common form. Uh, If you look at patients who obviously have two wild-type PKD1 genes, they're generally healthy and they don't have the disease. If you're unfortunate enough to get both copies of the PKD1 gene, um, it's usually an embryonic lethal. Uh, The heterozygotes for PKD1 generally have a mixed uh, level of phenotype where they may have uh, early onset of cysts or later onset of cysts and the extent of cysts and progression to renal renal failure can differ. And there also are some various alleles of the PKD1 gene that have their hypomorphs, meaning that they don't have quite as much function as the wild type gene. And so some people can have two copies of one of these hypomorphs and have adult onset polycystic kidney disease and not have a single wild-type allele. Now, this variability is very important clinically um, because you're going to see differences that are very dramatic amongst different patients with polycystic kidney disease. So, if we look, for example, the growth rate uh, varies between about 0.5 percent by volume to t- greater than 20 percent by volume per year uh, for for a particular patient, and the average growth rate is about 5 percent per year. So if we look at this curve, you can see an example of a person here who has very dramatic rise in their uh, total kidney volume in their 20s. This is a very rapid rise. And yet you can see patients out in their mid-40s, early 50s that have a very flat rise in their uh, total kidney volume. And total kidney volume is important because it's tied to loss of GFR. So this is a modeling study published in Nature in 2016, just looking at the difference uh, in different growth rates and their effect on GFR decline. So if we look at uh, the average, 5% per year, you can see that these patients are generally going to have a decline in their GFR to the point of uh, needing dialysis in their mid to late 50s. But even going up a little bit in growth rate to 7% or 10%, shows a dramatic effect on the timing of progression to end-stage renal disease. So if your growth rate is 10% per year, then you're going to see you'll be going on to dialysis in your mid-40s. So the take-home message is really that not all these polycystic kidney disease patients are the same, uh, and each one has to be individualized. Now, when you look at the diversity of phenotypes, one of the things you'll see is a very great diversity in renal sizes. So these are two patients. Both of them are similar in age. And you can see that on the left panel, uh, this is a very modest phenotype of polycystic kidney disease. So there are lots of cysts, but the kidneys aren't that large. And they're generally um, similar to to normal kidneys. Uh, On the right panel, you can see a tremendously large kidney volume associated with polycystic kidney disease in a patient of a similar age. Um, Likewise, you'll see large kidneys with innumerable cysts on imaging. You'll also see cysts in the liver, and up to 90% of adults will have liver cysts. Um, You'll see pancreatic cysts less commonly, about 35%, and they're a little bit more common in the PKD2 mutations. Um, Note that if you have a patient who's uh, age 40 and has no cysts, essentially that excludes polycystic kidney disease uh, in their diagnosis even without the genetic testing. When you look at the liver cysts, there's quite a bit of variability in their size and their effect on the phenotype. So in this case, you can see a very large amount of liver cysts on this patient. And in this patient, despite the tremendous kidney cysts, they have very little to no liver cysts. So this is an important thing to keep an eye on when you're planning treatment for these patients. Sometimes the imaging can be truly dramatic, and it's hard to imagine how these patients are not more symptomatic than they are. In this case, you can see a tremendous uh, bilateral cystic disease, and their abdominal organs in the upper abdomen are basically squeezed down into this little triangle. Amazing that this doesn't cause more symptoms than it does. So these patients can present with a variety of symptoms. Um, Many of them will have hypertension or pain, They can present with cyst infections and sepsis and urinary tract infections. Sometimes they'll bleed into cysts, which can cause acute pain or they'll have perinephric bleeding or gross hematuria, which is relatively common. Less severe symptoms, some of them will have early satiety and difficulty eating uh, and increased abdominal girth or shortness of breath. And of course, they can have a progressive loss of renal function over time and end up on dialysis or require transplantation. Many of these patients will present just with complaints about how their clothing doesn't fit or they don't like the way they look in their clothing or they're uncomfortable at work where they have to wear uh, business clothing. Um, And one take home message is that despite the fact that these patients may look very large uh, in clothing, they have very little abdominal wall fat. So this is a fairly representative picture. You can see this is gonna be a very large looking person, but they have very little abdominal wall fat. And that's often a function of the fact that they just can't eat very much because of these large cysts. So they may be relatively malnourished despite looking very large on on the outside. So this is just an extreme example. We'll revisit this one a little bit later. But this is a patient with a very severe polycystic kidney disease, a very symptomatic person. You can see that after bilateral nephrectomies, the person is really almost emaciated. It's It's a dramatic difference, and that's just removal of the kidneys. It has nothing to do with abdominal wall fat. So there's a spectrum of polycystic kidney disease, ranging from mild anatomic changes to very extreme anatomic changes, and a spectrum of disease, of symptoms, ranging from patients that are completely asymptomatic to those that are very severely symptomatic. And although we might like to think that these are directly correlated, there is some variability. Um, there are patients out there with very large kidneys who have relatively mild symptoms, and then the reverse is also true. Um, as a urologist, when you tend to see these people, you're tending to see them toward the upper end of the spectrum of symptoms since they don't end up in your office until they're looking for some type of surgical intervention in most cases. So surgical considerations for polycystic kidney disease, obviously there are lots of different options. Uh, Bilateral nephrectomies can be done for symptom control. We can do unilateral nephrectomies for symptom control or for tumors or for transplant space considerations. We'll cover that a little bit more extensively later. We can do cystic cortications. And of course, the management of nephrolithiasis in polycystic kidney patients is a whole other topic. We're really not going to cover that today, but that's certainly an interesting and um, uh, topic to, to cover. The issue of tumor uh, is a little bit controversial. Um, the general pervasive wisdom is that autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease doesn't increase your risk of um, renal cell carcinoma, but there's definitely some crossover here between patients with polycystic kidney disease and acquired cystic disease, which clearly does carry a higher risk. So, something to keep in mind uh, when you're following these patients as they lose their renal function. So, for patients with relatively adequate native kidney function, we're thinking about do we do nothing with them? Do we treat them with medical therapy? Do we do a cysticortication? Do we do nephrectomy? That's obviously going to be a last-ditch effort in most of those patients. For patients on hemodialysis or who have already been renal, had renal transplants who are looking primarily at nephrectomies. So let's touch just briefly on some of the medical management issues. If you look back through the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA over the mid-2000s, you're going to see a series of articles looking at various approaches to try to medically treat polycystic kidney disease patients and slow the decline of their GFR. Some of these have been fairly unsatisfying and others have been more satisfying. So here's an example from 2010 uh, where we looked at, or we, where they looked at Everolimus uh, to see if this could affect uh, total kidney volume. Everolimus was found to be somewhat effective in managing polycystic kidney disease in rodent models, uh, which turned out to not have a lot of correlation to the the situation in uh, humans. In this study, Everolimus uh, did incre- did slow the increase in total kidney volume a little bit, but really didn't alter the progression of renal functional impairment. Likewise, angiotensin blockade with ACE inhibitors can co- control blood pressure issues in these patients, um, but the addition of angiotensin II blockers didn't alter the decline in GFR progression to end-stage renal disease uh, published in 2014. Um, In a rodent model of polycystic kidney disease, somatostatin was found to be renal protective, uh, but this was not found to to be an effect seen in humans in a study published in 2018 in JAMA. Really the go-to medical management treatment for polycystic kidney disease outside of supportive care uh, has been Tolvaptin. Uh, Tolvaptin is a vasopressin V2 receptor antagonist and in a large randomized trial published in 2012 was shown to slow the increase in total kidney volume as well as the decline in GFR uh, in these patients to, a, to some degree. Um, tovaptin is not a free lunch. About 15% of the patients in the Tolvaptin group had adverse events. And about 23% of patients discontinued the trial. But this is definitely something that your nephrology colleagues will be considering for many of their polycystic kidney patients. If you're interested in a review of this, there's a great review in Nature Reviews Nephrology in 2017 that kind of goes through most of the ongoing clinical trials for medical management. All right, so let's come back again to the patient with uh, relatively adequate native kidney function, and let's talk a little bit about cyst decortication, which is a controversial topic. So I think we're all pretty familiar with cyst decortication. Uh, technically, this is an example of a robotic cyst decortication. See, we're identifying the cyst, draining the cysts, and then we'll resect just the cyst wall. This is something that can be done off-clamp, of course, since you're, there's very little blood supply to these thin cyst walls. And then we resect this cyst and move on from there. Uh, oftentimes, you can, uh, you'll be treating the cysts with um, the argondine to address the the inner wall. Um, Here's an example of a case of polycystic kidney disease where this type of approach was done. So this is a 61-year-old policeman on his feet all the time. Baseline creatinine was 1.9. Very severe abdominal girth issues. Um, He was having an awfully difficult time doing his job, uh, wearing his uniform. Very large abdominal habitus, but almost no abdominal wall or visceral fat. You can see very thin abdominal wall fat. So this gentleman underwent a, a bilateral cystic laparoscopically, about a four-and-a-half-hour procedure, a uh, four-day hospital stay. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and really a dramatic improvement in abdominal girth after that procedure. Um, by three months postoperatively, he had lost 20 pounds and eight inches of abdominal circumference. And this, this effect was durable out to about three years. Um, so it is something that has some role in helping symptoms in patients with reasonable baseline creatinine. There are some downsides, though, that we really do need to keep in mind. These are long and somewhat open-ended laparoscopic procedures, so it might take you as long to do a cystic cortication as it would be to do a nephrectomy in these patients. Um, and they have a, a relatively difficult postoperative course. So I would say that, for the most part, patients who have cystic for polycystic kidney disease have a worse postoperative course than do patients who undergo nephrectomy for the same problem. And I think that's related to perineal irritation due to the leakage of cyst fluid that's inevitable during these cases. They have a very slow return of bowel function and certainly slower than what we see in normal laparoscopic cases. And of course, you have to keep in mind that if these patients are ultimately going to go on to defrectomy, are doing extensive cyst decortication is going to complicate that procedure later. So cyst decortication in the setting of polycystic kidney disease was first described in 1995 And there really were a flurry of reports in the early 2000s, but remarkably little has been written about this in the last five to 10 years. These early studies uh, showed some durable and effective symptom control in very selected cases and safety related to kidney function. But there really are very few hard and fast guidelines about how to approach these patients. How completely do you need to decorticate them to achieve these goals? which people respond best to this intervention and when to intervene. Just looking back at some of these early studies, if you look at uh, the first one by uh, Elspeth McDougall in 2000, um, you know, the statement that in patients with with positive kidney disease, it's important to mobilize the kidney completely, particularly the upper pole to treat every visible cyst. And this has been the philosophy. I would say I don't entirely agree with that, um, but it is certainly reasonable. Um, If you look through the rest of these uh, titles, you'll see that most of these uh, papers were were published by the same group through uh, Ralph Klingman's group at the time. Um, They generally are smaller, retrospective case studies. Here's an example. This is a a case study of 37 patients published in 2012. Uh, Only 19 patients had greater than three-year follow-up. And this study demonstrated durable pain relief but not control of hypertension. Uh, at the 10 year mark in these patients. But of course it's not randomized or prospective and there's really no control group in, the, in this study. Um, many of these patients, about 67% who were contacted, again, small numbers, would have done it again if they had the opportunity. So I think that the pain control side of this is real. Um, and, but if you look at trends in their declining GFR, you can see that most of these patients still had a substantial decline in their GFR over the 10-year period. Some more recent studies, here's one from 2018, a retrospective study in China of 135 patients, very short follow-up, only one year. They showed a slight improvement in GFR after the procedure, uh, but no real control of hypertension in these patients. Uh, It doesn't provide us with a whole lot of guidance uh, on uh, whether to use this and in what population. Another study out of China, 70 patients, Um, this one had a three-year follow-up. Many of these patients ended up with, quote, renal denervation. We can certainly talk about that in the questions portion of this, uh, but it kind of clouds the results as to the utility of this. And in general, these patients had improvement in pain, a little bit in blood pressure, but only in the mildest cohort, uh, and these effects were relatively short-lived. So I would summarize and say that the published data on cystic cortication in polycystic kidney disease is relatively weak. Um, It does appear to provide some significant long-term improvement in some symptoms, particularly abdominal girth issues, perhaps pain and early satiety, uh, but not others. The hypertension and and GFR decline, um, we really don't have evidence for that. Uh, We don't really know whether this procedure improves the risk of having a future adverse event there really are no randomized trials and very few patients presented. And we don't know how extensive the decortication has to be to achieve these goals. Uh, there is some, progress, some evidence that uh, progression to end-stage renal disease accelerates as the GFR gets lower. Uh, so it may be that doing this procedure in patients with earlier GFR decline may be more beneficial. So what do I do? And again, I would I would take this with a very large grain of salt based on the limited data that's available. I'm a relative believer in the efficacy of cysticortication for pain, abdominal girth, and and satiety issues. And really, sometimes the effects are very impressive. That gentleman that I showed you was the policeman is one example. Um, a couple of tips though: keep in mind uh, that you need to look at the liver cyst volume when you're considering this procedure for a patient. If the patient has massive liver cystic disease, doing just the kidneys may not be adequate to achieve your goals, and you may want to do something in in conjunction with the liver surgeons. Um, I like to consider this procedure for patients with well-preserved GFR who are pretty significantly symptomatic, and I really don't consider doing it for patients who are asymptomatic based on some concept of preventing future symptoms, because I don't think we have any data to suggest that, that that would be appropriate. I like to do this in patients with large dominant cysts as opposed to hundreds of small to medium cysts. I personally don't always completely mobilize both kidneys and decorticate every cyst. Um, That may be more relevant for patients with chronic pain, um, but I'm concerned about the difficulty of future nephrectomy in these groups, and it is a very long procedure. I think the most important take home message is that you really need to counsel these patients very carefully. Uh, Recovery from cyst decortication in the setting of polycystic kidney disease is not like recovery after a standard cyst decortication or a solitary large renal cyst. It is a long and difficult recovery for these patients related to the peritoneal irritation component. So this is something that I really lay crepe uh, with the patients before we proceed with surgery. I prefer to do these cases laparoscopically rather than robotically, but again, there's nothing wrong with uh, a robotic approach if, if that's what you prefer. Uh, you may need to consider doing uh, this with the XI due to the bilateral nature. Again, cyst sizes, two different scenarios. Um, In this case, on the right, you see these larger, uh, more dominant cysts, more like removing a water balloon. And this is something that's much more like the situation in standard cyst decortications. When you're dealing with these very small confluent cysts, it's a bit more like trying to decompress a Nerf football. Um, and you'll be a little disappointed by the effect that you get from decorticating hundreds of these tiny cysts. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the hemodialysis and renal transplant patients. Um, in these cases, you're generally considering unilateral or bilateral nephrectomy, either because they have severe symptoms uh, or for transplant space considerations. So let's start off with that. So there's no general consensus on when or if to do nephrectomy for patients prior to renal transplantation. This is something that varies very greatly from transplant surgeon to transplant surgeon and program to program. And I generally defer these uh, to their requests on this issue. Um, For asymptomatic patients, the utterly asymptomatic patients who are being referred just for space issues, it's probably true that a unilateral nephrectomy is sufficient. And that leads to a shorter and simpler procedure. I would just counsel you that you really want to talk with the patient about the road ahead in these situations and if the person has some degree of symptoms, uh, you may be better off just doing bilateral nephrectomy at the time uh, rather than having to come back for a staged procedure later. Again, lots of variations in patients who are going on to transplant. You can see here's a Five foot six, 140 pound person with large kidneys, clearly that's going to be a bigger problem for your transplant surgeons than the 6'4", 260 pound patient. Um, so again, I think we can defer to them in most cases and there's going to be a lot of surgeon preference in the decision as to whether nephrectomy should be done before transplant. Do we worry about transplant kidneys getting compressed by the native kidneys? And causing transplant kidney defu- dysfunction, I-, I would say probably not. I haven't seen any data to suggest that that's a major uh, factor here it's really more of a technical issue at the time of transplant uh, surgery. Keep in mind, there are studies out there that show a significant regression in kidney size of native kidneys after transplantation. Uh, and some of these can be fairly dramatic, but I would caution you that uh, they're not a hundred percent. So if you look at this. Uh, Diagram, you can see there are quite a few patients on this list that have a fairly flat renal size uh, after transplantation out to 12 and a half years. Um, The summary of this article shows up to up to about a 50% median volume loss uh, after 12 years, but this is a very small number of patients. You can see only eight patients in the 12-year group. 40 patients at at um, an earlier time point had about a 30% decrease in volume. So I think we can say that in some patients we see a decrease in volume that may help them in terms of their symptoms, but I don't think that we can count on that in everyone. Timing of nephrectomy is also somewhat controversial. Um, There is published literature showing the safety of nephrectomy before, during, or after renal transplantation. Um, I think this is another surgeon preference issue. Uh, and different transplant surgeons and transplant programs may may have a different opinion on this issue. Um, Generally, we favor bilateral nephrectomies for symptoms and unilateral nephrectomy for the rare patient with absolutely no symptoms and and transplant space considerations only. Just a little practical common sense advice. Um, If you're going to be doing this in practice, your transplant surgeons will often prefer to have the native nephrectomies prior to transplant, and you may be pressured to do this. I think there is data to suggest that this is a safe approach, um, but it's it does carry with it a little bit of baggage. In practical terms, I think that patients that have a functional transplant bounce back more rapidly after nephrectomy of their native ADPKD kidneys as compared to those patients that are on dialysis. So it's important to talk about that with your patient if you're making this decision. Uh, these are not the shortest or technically easiest nephrectomies, so complications can occur, and some of those complications can really postpone timing for transplantation and be very frustrating for the patient. Uh, I had a patient uh, a little while ago that ended up with societies after uh, one of these procedures and it really delayed their progression onto transplant. It was very frustrating. So it was it was helpful to have had a discussion with that person before the surgery about the possibility of it delaying their transplantation. I think it's very important uh, to be frank with your patients, particularly the ones that are gonna be rendered anephric and initiate dialysis after bilateral native nephrectomies as a bridge to transplantation. This is something that we're doing quite a bit now, Um, but some of these people will have trouble. They will have hypertension issues and ER visits and other things that may affect the timing of their transplantation, particularly from a living donor. So worth having that conversation with them. So if we look at some of the literature briefly, um, here's an example of a study published in 2018 that showed that if you do the native nephrectomies at the same time as the renal transplantation, you'll see somewhat poorer outcomes. So patients that had both at the same time ended up with a higher blood transfusion rate, a higher rate of critical care use, and a higher rate of complications. And that's not surprising considering the magnification of the scale of the procedure that you're doing. Um, there are other authors that have advocated removing the kidneys after successful transplantation, and I think that. know, with experience you'll see that these patients generally do better if they have their native nephrectomies after transplantation. I would just caution you to be careful when you read this literature. The vast majority of this literature is based on open kidney removal procedures, and that has a different morbidity uh, degree than the laparoscopic procedures. Here's a study uh, published in 2019, so just recently, it showed no difference in outcomes for 121 patients who had either unilateral native nephrectomy before or after transplantation. And keep in mind all of these patients, this is 2019, all of these patients had an open flank incision for their surgery. Something to talk about. So let's talk a little bit for the last section on technique. Um, so traditional management of polycystic kidney diseases generally involve a large incision. These are big kidneys. A lot of room needs to be uh, made to do the procedure. And so a Chevron approach has really been the gold standard for managing this. And obviously, that's a difficult uh, incision to recover from. Um, this is still done very frequently throughout the United States by both urologists and transplant surgeons. And, and really, most of the transplant literature, even the recent literature, on native nephrectomies and polycystic disease is based on open surgery. It's interesting, in urology, we've abandoned open surgery for kidneys for all but the most extreme pathology at tertiary referral centers with expertise in MIS, Um, but most general urologists still don't do laparoscopic kidney surgery for polycystic kidney disease. Why is that? Well, there's, I think, a perception that this is a bit like dancing with a dangerous dinosaur in the sense that these are kidneys that are just too large to remove laparoscopically. It's understandable why that might be. We believed. Um, The thought is that lap nephrectomies, particularly bilateral in these patients, is just going to take far too long and be unsafe for the patient. And again, removal of the kidneys being so large is going to require such a huge extraction site that it's honestly pointless. And I would argue that all of these are wrong, but the truth is that it's an understandable misconception. Remember that surgeons that do nephrectomies have different backgrounds. So we've got transplant surgeons who, for the most part, do donor nephrectomies or occasional polycystic kidney disease uh, nephrectomies. So it's a pretty limited subset of pathology that they'll treat. Urologists, of course, are doing all kinds of kidney surgery all the time, um, both minimally invasive and, in some cases, open. So when you look at the donor nephrectomy world, there's still a lot of variation in how uh, different surgeons do donor nephrectomies, which is relatively a straightforward procedure. You see a lot of surgeons still doing hand assist Uh, Left nephrectomies, there are surgeons doing them with multi-port approaches. We do all of ours with single-site approaches. But there's a broad spectrum of what's offered throughout the country. There are programs where left-sided nephrectomies are done laparoscopically, and the right-sided nephrectomies are all done open. So it's not a single standard across the board. Now these, the thing about these laparoscopic procedures, is they're technically challenging, but honestly quite manageable. Um, these patients generally do quite well. They have an excellent post recovery, usually 48 to 72 hours, but not quite as good as a standard laparoscopic nephrectomy for uh, a renal tumor. Um, in general, they have a more rapid return to activities than open surgery, just, that, just like in other cases of nephrectomy. It's obviously very important, particularly early on in your learning curve, to look at the films of these patients. How big are their kidneys? Do we need to consider staging the side? Um, do one side and then come back to the other side. That's rarely necessary with experience, but early on, it's not a bad idea to consider that. And do they have hepatic cystic disease and how big is their body habitus? Remember that we've seen this evolution in MIS techniques in urology over the last two decades. We've transitioned from open to hand assist to straight laparoscopic, and now into robotic and single site approaches And we do all of those things. We do all of our donor nephrectomies through a single-site approach. We do all our partial nephrectomies robotically. But for these cases, I tend to prefer to do them using standard multi-port laparoscopic approaches with an occasional fallback to hand assist for extreme cases. Remember that when you're doing this robotically uh, versus laparoscopically, you have a little bit of a difference in terms of your working volume. So if you are doing this with an SI robot, for example, it may be a bit of a challenge to deal with a bilateral procedure that requires you to access the entire patient's abdomen from the costal margin down to the pelvis. Obviously the the availability of XI has helped us with that. And so if you're interested in doing these cases robotically, an XI may be a better choice. So here's an example of a, a relatively straightforward case, 64-year-old man, three episodes of sepsis that were we'll uh, believe related to polycystic kidney disease, over a year period. Had a transplant several years before, nice thin individual, not a lot of dominant cysts, mild hepatic cystic disease, nothing that was too difficult, and a transplant kidney. And this is just a you know, four-hour procedure for both sides, a standard laparoscopic multi-port approach, low blood loss, good urine output throughout the case, uh, and no complications. Um, These are pretty small kidneys, 20, 22 centimeters, not not really a hard day uh, at work. Uh, But you can do the same thing with very large kidneys. Here's an example of a uh, kidney that was over 42 centimeters. Um, So it is possible to do the very large kidneys. Of course, the larger they are, the more technically challenging they can be. You know, body habitus looks like it's going to be a huge problem when you meet these people and you look at their images, but it doesn't always turn out that way. So here's an example of a relatively thin person who had previously undergone a uh, right-sided nephrectomy and now was coming back for a left-sided nephrectomy. You can see a very tremendous cystic burden, very thin individual. You can see this looks like the scene from Alien. Um, But again, not that difficult to remove. When you are gonna go whale hunting with a laparoscope, there's a few things you should think about. Obviously, is this a pre or post transplant patient? And what's their body habitus? Certainly a larger individual uh, is gonna be easier to address than a very thin individual in terms of just body size. It's more about height and width than it is their body weight in terms of uh, fat. Uh, have they had symptomatic complications in the past? Have they have had lots of cyst bleed events or cyst infections? you may have more difficulty removing their kidneys laparoscopically. And again, it's nice to have up-to-date cross-sectional imaging for these people. If they've been a few years without imaging, you probably want something more up-to-date just to make sure that the roadmap hasn't really changed. And I'll stress one specific thing, which is looking on those images for whether or not the cysts cross the midline. So if you have a right kidney and the cysts cross the midline, that is going to, significantly increase your degree of difficulty. So early on in your experience those are probably not the patients that you want to start with. So tips and tricks. Um, You can do these cases supine or bump with with repositioning. I always used to approach them uh, supine and use the paddle to do this. The honest truth is it's easier to do them bump and repositioning can be done fairly quickly. Um, I think early in your experience doing them in standard uh, lap nephrectomy positions where they're bumped and then repositioning is going to make it easier for you. I generally like to do multiport laparoscopy. I, I don't think these are great single site cases just for a variety of reasons. Um, there are some situations where hand assist is a very helpful adjunct uh, if you are having difficulty exposing what you need to see. Um, watch out for closed access in these patients, even though they look large, they have very little abdominal wall fat and try to minimize cyst ruptures as much as you can. Uh, But do drain cysts in a controlled fashion using suction uh, as needed. This can be a very helpful adjunct to making these procedures straightforward. And I do generally a pretty extensive abdominal washout after extraction, try to minimize the spillage. Um, If we're gonna drain cysts, we usually do so after the colon reflection um, to minimize a confusion of tissue planes. And we'll try to start with the symptomatic side in case for whatever reason, it's necessary to stage these procedures. I like that peck to death by ducklings approach. You know, Even in experienced hands, these procedures can be frustrating and you just have to approach it a little bit at a time. Just peck away, take the parts of the procedure that, that it will give you. And, and with patience, it turns out to be very manageable. Obviously try to square the adrenal glands in these cases, you wanna minimize the risk of adrenal insufficiency. Uh, lifting the lower pole is one of the most critical portions of this procedure. So having a good instrument to do that is helpful. This uh, is the, the Cavidian Atlas. It's just a 10 millimeter, very nice, blunt instrument. It's good for energy use, but also very good for lifting. Um, usually a 10 millimeter instrument will be better for this than a 5 millimeter instrument, because you really are kind of lifting an elephant in some of these cases. So just a little bit of, of technical stuff. Um, when you look at these, you have a very large uh, kidney here. It's kind of obscuring the critical zone. This area is obviously the critical area and lifting the lower pole of the kidney can be a real challenge. And you can facilitate this a variety of ways, not the least of which is doing drainage of cysts, uh, but lifting is critical. If you do that though, you can get very nice view of the renal vessels just as you would in a standard uh, nephrectomy. Here we see the renal artery and the renal vein. There's really nothing magical about it but you really have to get that lower pole lifted early on. Same thing on the left side. That lower pole left is really just critical, and using the right instruments can, can help. I'm going to skip over that. Um, one thing I would stress is that uh, the upper pole dissection in these cases can be quite challenging. You know, We think about doing laparoscopic nephrectomies, that, that last bit of the procedure where you're just sort of cleaning up and taking the upper pole, particularly on the right side, isn't such a big deal. But sometimes it's the hardest part of a polycystic kidney disease case. Um, Watch out for that and and be patient. That last 20% of the procedure is probably the most common reason for hand assist conversion, uh, particularly early in your experience. So again, here's an example of a difficult upper pole uh, release, I'll just jump ahead a little for the sake of time. Um, You can see that you're really fighting this big kidney, and having to push it down to get access to uh, structures up here above the upper pole. So that's a very critical portion and it can be very frustrating in these cases. So anticipate that. A couple things that can be very helpful. um, We have uh, started using an articulating 3D laparoscope for these procedures. It's very helpful to be able to get that scope up in the upper pole and be able to look down on structures. Uh, And I think that's, unless you have a bariatric rigid scope, sometimes your view is not what you would prefer. Um, How do you get these things out? Now that we did all this work, um, they don't even come close to fitting into traditional uh, bags. Um, Generally, we can remove these through a lower midline incision. Whether or not we have to go above the umbilicus is really just a function of the size of the kidney, but you'd be surprised how small the incision can be to extract even a very large kidney. You have to think about it a little bit like a football. Obviously, there's one cross-sectional area of the long axis of the football is very large, but the cross-sectional area of the small axis of the football is quite a bit smaller, and that allows us to get them out through a smaller incision. This is just a example of that process. This is a fairly thin patient and you can see that we're really delivering this polycystic kidney that's been partially decompressed already uh, out through the, uh, the relatively small lower midline incision. You can see so we're working our way here again talk about the scene from alien. And there you go. So, pretty big kidney, not very big incision. Think about hand assist conversion um, in certain circumstances. And again, I would say, particularly in the mobilization of a very difficult upper pole. This is a great fallback position. It adds very little morbidity, probably none. Um, and you can usually put your hand in through your extraction incision, maybe by shifting it up slightly northward. So, again, here's an extreme case. Um, very large patient I showed you before. It, as a portion of this procedure, we removed about 18 liters of fluid prior to removing the kidney. This was done in a controlled fashion using suction. Just to put that in perspective, 18 liters is nine two liter bottles of soda in your abdomen. That's kind of amazing. Uh, and you can see that we still have very large kidneys at the end of the procedure and a dramatic change in their body habitus afterwards. But this was all done laparoscopically. All right. Complications really similar to other complicated nephrectomies, particularly those in iller patients, or more ill patients if you have patients that are on dialysis, and bleeding, infection, adjacent organ injuries. Not really anything different here than what you'd see in a more difficult standard nephrectomy for a large renal tumor. All right. So just a few take-home messages as we finish up. Uh, Mentally invasive approaches really are very well suited to this disease, despite some misconceptions out there in the community about it. Um, Converting those to open is really rarely necessary with experience. Um, Cyst decortication may be beneficial for symptomatic patients prior to their uh, transplantation uh, and for those that wanna preserve renal function as long as possible. Um, However, the data on long-term outcomes and patient selection for that are fairly thin. Um, This approach is is pretty effective for controlling symptoms, but doesn't seem to really delay progression to end-stage renal disease. When you're doing nephrectomies for patients, uh, you can do them before, after, or during the renal transplantation safely, uh, and that timing is generally dependent more on surgeon and program preference. The difficulty of doing rap nephrectomies for polycystic kidneys can vary widely, so it's important to select your patients well early on in your experience. And again, identifying critical landmarks and particularly elevating that lower pole of these large polycystic kidneys uh, is one of the more challenging portions of the procedure. Keep in mind that controlling your frustration early on in your experience is important, and if you take this peck-to-death-by-ducks approach, uh, you'll generally do just fine. And again, you won't believe what you can accomplish laparoscopically in these, in these patients, and they will certainly appreciate the benefits. Thank you very much for your attention.
1: Great, thank you so much, Dr. Link, for an excellent talk um, on this topic that I think is uh, very interesting to all of us and maybe we don't get a lot of uh, chances to learn about. Um, I see you put up the slide for the evaluation. I'd like to just take this time to remind everyone to please fill that out, even if you've done it before. We're trying to track the effectiveness of these lectures um, and also track the effect of the pandemic overall using the surveys. So it would be really helpful if you filled that out. Uh, we have a few questions here. Um, there are quite a few questions about sort of how you get access in these nephrectomy cases given the severe mass effect. What type of access do you use of Ress or Hassan and where the port site's located and such.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, there's nothing particularly special about access challenges in these patients other than understanding that they have a very thin abdominal wall and uh, they have very large kidneys. So, you know, if you're doing closed access, you need to be careful. You're not going to have to put your various needle in very far and you might end up getting cyst fluid out if you're not careful. With that said, um, they have a very thin abdominal wall. So closed access is actually... Uh, pretty straightforward in these folks as long as you understand that they have a very thin abdominal wall. So I will usually do closed access for polycystic uh, cases um, and it works fine. I don't think that there's anything wrong with doing uh, open access. Again, I I don't do um, these cases using single single site approaches most of the time, although we do most of our nephrectomies outside of polycystic kidney disease that way. So if you're someone that does a lot of single site Uh, approaches using say a gel point device, that's a very nice way to get safe access in in someone like this. Um, But I would say that any approach that you would normally use for nephrectomy is perfectly appropriate. Um, In terms of port positioning for multi-port cases, really you need to have access to the whole abdomen. So we're just using essentially an L-shaped configuration with a port in the umbilicus, a port in the upper midline, a port laterally, and then one in the lower midline that gets incorporated into the extraction site. Very sort of traditional approach to a multi-port hyposcopic procedure. Generally, if you're doing bilateral, you really just need uh,
1: five ports. Great. A uh, follow-up question to that. Is there any role for a morselator in extraction of these large kidneys?
0: The the honest answer to that is I wish. Um, I, I think these are very difficult kidneys to morselate. So, you know, we've all had some experience doing uh, removal of, say, big hydronephrotic kidneys and doing, uh, you know, hand morselation with a, a ring forceps—that is not something that you can do with these monster kidneys. Um, there may be some potential role for uh, powered morselators in general. I don't, I don't know that it would be of great benefit because this extraction site in these patients is generally very well tolerated. So. You're looking at you know six seven centimeter lower midline um, extraction site that's actually quite comfortable uh, in in general compared to say you know a chevron or something like that so um, i I think that the, the driving force to do morselation here is is pretty modest
1: great um a question about the indication for these nephrectomies is there a threshold that transplant surgeons use for space requirements and that may be an individual
0: I mean, it's a great question. I wish I could answer it. I think it's very variable. Uh, You know, we work with three different transplant programs, and um, it's very very different by individual transplant surgeons. So there are certain transplant surgeons that send me a lot of patients that need nephrectomies prior to transplant, and there are other transplant surgeons that would just operate on those patients without doing so. So I think it's very much uh, uh, surgeon-dependent. Again, I tend to defer to them on that issue. If that's something they feel is essential, then we'll do it for them for the most part. Um, but again, I think it's, it's going to vary by institution.
1: Great. Uh, question on uh, the polycystic kidney cystic Is there an indication, or should we close the peritoneum and the retroperitoneal space following cystic Uh
0: That's a great question. Uh, the, the truth is that it's quite difficult to do that. Um, in the sense that when you look in on a polycystic uh, case, the huge kidneys have basically pushed everything out of the way and really attenuated that peritoneum. Uh, It might be possible to do it similar to what we do in intraperitonealization of the ureter, where we create a flap and then swing it back over. We haven't tried that. It's not a bad idea to consider it. I think that in general, though, when you're doing a cystic cortication for polycystic kidney disease, you're going to have a lot of spillage. So that spillage is all exposing the peritoneal lining to this fairly caustic fluid. I think the the cyst fluid that you see in the polycystic uh, patients is more irritating than the cyst fluid you see in a standard cystic cortication. Now, when you do a standard cystic cortication for a 10 centimeter renal cyst, those patients do fantastic. They go home the next day. They don't have peritonitis. They look really great, even if you spill some of the fluid. In the polycystic patients, it just doesn't
1: go that way, unfortunately. Great. Uh, Is there any role for drainage and sclerotherapy in managing these patients?
0: I mean, you could argue that maybe in specific circumstances where you can identify a cyst that is the source of the problem, but in practice, that's difficult to do. You're talking about thousands of cysts. And uh, so trying to do sclerotherapy in thousands of cysts is a pretty challenging undertaking. Um, I think the only reason to do that would be if you could do it in an ex vivo fashion or you know percutaneously, but I think you're gonna have some trouble getting your radiologist to, to do that with you know 500 cysts per side. Um, so I don't know the answer. I don't think anyone's really studied that in polycystic kidney disease, um, but if you have a person who is a good candidate for a decortication, has the right indications, has good renal function preservation, um, you know, that procedure is, Uh, reasonable to do, and I'm not sure that you would gain a lot by having them get, you know, 500 punctures.
1: Great. Uh, Question, do you routinely screen for intracranial aneurysm in pre-op patients with an MRI of the brain?
0: Uh, So most of these people come to us from uh, nephrology and uh, transplant surgery and have had some head imaging prior, through that part of their workup. So I don't generally have to do that. I think it's a good idea if you have someone that is completely you know unworked up Um, but in general most of these people have had some head imaging prior to being referred
1: great Uh, we have some questions about sort of the management of bleeding in these patients in a non-operative sense can you discuss the management of an acute bleed presenting with flank pain in the er
0: yeah i think you can approach these patients the same as you would approach any patient with an acute renal bleed in the ER. So if you have someone that has a large perinephric bleed who is hemodynamically unstable, etc., you know, they need embolization. That's going to be their their prime modality. Um, These are not the people that you would want to take to the OR for acute nephrectomies in the in the acute setting. I think, you know, it's really um, no different in terms of your thought process to say, a large angiomyolipoma that's bleeding in the ER. You want to stabilize them. You can approach them with embolization, and then if uh, that may be an indication to come back later and then do the nephrectomy in a controlled fashion. Um, so we don't generally take these patients to the OR emergently for nephrectomies when we have access to you know high quality embolization capability.
1: Great, and a follow-up to that, uh, what are your treatment options for recurrent bleeding cysts, especially when there's significant bleeding and needing transfusions and such?
0: Well, so there is some reason to consider decortication in the rare person who has preserved renal function, recurrent bleeds, Um, in that person, since you have the uh, imaging evidence, you may be able to identify the source of the bleeding. Um, Again, treating that person with embolization may protect them from recurrent bleeds from the same site. You're occasionally gonna run into a situation, and this happens rarely, where you have someone with reasonable uh, preserved renal function who just has recurrent multiple bleeds, either hematuria or perinephric bleeds, and occasionally those people just need nephrectomies in preparation for transplantation, and that can be a very difficult decision. I've had a few patients over the years where they had a you know, recurrent episodes of right-sided hematuria, and we ended up doing a right nephrectomy. They were still had enough renal function to stay off dialysis, um, but ultimately ended up uh, going on to be transplanted.
1: Great. Uh, in young patients, is there any recommendations regarding contact sports or limitations? Uh,
0: that's a good question. I, you know, it, I think that the, the the truth of that is we don't really know. Um, Most of these people progress over time, and I showed you that original um, graph. It's a rare person that has tremendous kidneys in their 20s, but I think at this point, we're not giving specific recommendations about uh, avoiding contact sports because of the history of polycystic kidney disease. Even in the setting of large cysts, you know, solitary cysts, I think there's some controversy about the risk of a rupture in those cases. Um, in polycystic kidney disease, where they generally have, especially in younger the younger age group, lots of medium-sized cysts, I would suspect that the risk should be pretty low.
1: Great. Um, we still have plenty of time. There's a couple of questions I think that you've kind of covered, but we can go ahead and discuss. Um, sure. There's a question, if you could please review some additional pearls for robotic cystic cortication, because the, the question asked us is not common at their institution.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that cyst decortication in general is a, is a we're, if we're talking about it in the setting of a non-polycystic patient, cyst decortication is a very straightforward, nice procedure. It's a good learning case early on in your laparoscopic or robotic experience. Um, very low-risk procedures in the sense of bleeding, et cetera. You don't have to achieve vascular control. They're usually pretty reasonable. So I would, I would just say uh, for those cases, making sure that you stay on the cyst wall and don't end up, you know, marching into the parenchyma, that's a a pretty critical tip. The biggest tip for the standard cystic cortication is uh, how do you address the base, okay? So usually we address the base with an argon, um, which is a, 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 you know, device has a very small depth of penetration. You have to be very careful when you're doing an argon uh, in a large cyst because sometimes these cysts are pushed up against major segmental vessels in the in the kidney. And if you bury that argon into that spot, you can have a very scary situation develop where you can have a large arterial bleed coming out of the base of that cyst and you don't have vascular control for those patients. So that's something to really consider and avoid when you're doing this. Um, and that just means maybe you avoid doing the argon at the real base uh, of the of the cyst that's up against the, the vascular term. Be careful with that. In terms of robotics for this, um, I mean, it's not really any different than any other robotic procedure that you would have access, you would need renal access for. Um, again, the robot, you're, you're depending on monopole or cautery more than you are uh, in the laparoscopic setting, and that's a good, that's a, a reasonable thing for a cystic cortication. Now, if you're talking specifically about polycystic kidney disease, um, it's a much more difficult procedure because you're talking about mobilizing these huge kidneys and you're talking about uh, doing cystocortication literally a hundred times in one procedure. Um, I think that most of us don't have, you know, unlimited infinite patience and so you have to go into that procedure with that mindset that you're going to spend four hours doing this, you're going to do a large number of cysts, you know it always ends up devolving into just puncturing and draining out a bunch of cysts uh, as as things go on but again the the technical side of it is really the same it's clearly much more difficult to access cysts if you're doing a transperitoneal approach for example it's very much more difficult to access cysts that are posterior uh, where you have to mobilize the kidney and it always concerns me a little bit about patients that may need an nephrectomy later when you do a full mobilization are you burning a bridge that gonna make your life very difficult later so I'm more inclined to focus on the dominant cysts and the ones that are more easily accessible that don't require full mobilization I know that diverges from what some other authors have recommended but it seems to work reasonably well and it perhaps doesn't burn that critical bridge
1: excellent Um, and then the last question we have uh, what's your argument against quotes MIS uh, polycystic kidney disease nephrectomies require a large incision anyway Uh, Do you think in in the minimally invasive context, a large incision portends a more favorable post-op recovery?
0: Well, I mean, I think that there's a tremendous amount of evidence that outside of the polycystic kidney arena, that the, the difference in morbidity and return to full activities is dramatically better with laparoscopic surgery, and that's why we've essentially given up open kidney surgery except in extreme circumstances. Um, that's no different in the polycystic patient than it is in the uh, non-polycystic patient. The, the difference in an incision between a full chevron where you go, you know, or, or even a partial Mercedes kind of incision and a seven to nine centimeter lower midline muscle splitting incision is pretty dramatic. So I would say that you see that very clearly in how the patients recover. Once they, they had that early period where you know it's a little rougher than the average nephrectomy to recover from, but they bounce back quite quickly after that, and they behave much more like a laparoscopic nephrectomy patient does than, say, someone that's had a Chevron incision for a, a, a large renal mass or a cable thrombus.
1: Great, thank you so much. I think that's all the questions we have, which is excellent. Uh, thank you again for joining us uh, and for your wonderful talk.
0: Yes, my uh, it was lots of fun. I appreciate it. It's, it's uh, it would be interesting to me to know a little bit from your audience as to how much of this they see in their normal experience. Do they see, you know, lots of procedures on polycystic kidney patients? Are they being done open or laparoscopic? I don't know if that's something that we can ask people as a follow-up question.
1: Yeah, uh, so if uh, the, for the viewers who are still here, if you, in just a comment uh, section of the eval for this lecture, if you want to enter that uh, for Dr. Link's uh, knowledge, you know, how often you guys see this. We don't have a specific question for you, but you can certainly enter it in the comments. That would be helpful to us.
0: And I would certainly encourage anyone to feel free to email me uh, at any time if you have questions or if anything comes up in this uh, arena. I'd be happy to
1: help as much as I can. Great. Thank you, Dr. Link. All right. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening.
0: We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.